This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Sugar and spice and everything nice. That's what little white girls are made of. While black girls are more likely to be suspended from school, seen as more promiscuous, and less likely to be believed when sexually assaulted. Tough reality for black girls seven times more likely to report having uh, been suspended, uh, four times more likely to report having been expelled, and three times more likely to report that they were referred to law enforcement for their behaviors. The unfair treatment of black girls in America. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Was there a difference in the way the military and law enforcement responded to the Black Lives Matter protest in Lafayette Square in June last year in Washington and the Capitol riot? The thing that just struck us again and again was just how incredibly different they were. And it sounds simple to say, but it feels impossible to sort of overstate. What they were wearing, too, was different. They weren't in riot gear at first. They were just in their regular uniforms. And that's compared to Lafayette Square. You had police officers and law enforcement officials in, in riot gear. You had shields. You had fencing. It was just so vastly different how how prepared the two groups were for the two days. Rachel Chasen, a reporter for The Washington Post, who was in the midst of both of them, talks to us about it. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality. Exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. It is now my great privilege and high honor to be the first person to officially introduce the 46th President of the United States, Joseph R. Biden, Jr. Folks, this is a time of testing. We face an attack on our democracy and on truth, a raging virus, growing inequity, the sting of systemic racism, a climate in crisis, America's role in the world. Any one of these would be enough to challenge us in profound ways. But the fact is, we face them all at once, presenting this nation with one of the gravest responsibilities we've had. Now we're going to be tested. Are we going to step up, all of us? I'm Chris Corr, and I'm white. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors. Hey, Chris, how are you? Well, quite a week. Uh, so I'm, I'm good. And I think, you know, maybe a little bit later on after we talk to our guest, we could talk about this this week. Uh, you must be exhausted with all the things that you have to cover. Um, yeah. And then but, doing this on top of it. Good for you. But, you know, one thing about doing this is you, when you're in it, you don't really know how bad you feel or how tired you are. But That's I'd true. like to ask you, though, how's your blood pressure? 
Uh, I'm I'm feeling a lot better now than I was a couple of days ago. Let's put it that way. I, you know, I, okay. I was very worried about what might happen on Inauguration Day. And yeah. uh, you assured me that everything was going to go OK and that the president should do exactly what he did. And that is including that parade sort of uh, down Pennsylvania Avenue and walking in the street. Um, you were right. And I'm, you know, hats off to the security exactly. around around the president to make that a safe venture exactly. for him, because I think everybody was a little bit worried. Yeah. You remember that American Express uh, commercial that says uh, membership has its benefits. So I will say this to you. Rubbing elbows with the national security folks has its benefits. And I kind of sensed that that was the way they were going to go with that. And I'm glad they did. Yeah, but I'm also glad, really glad today that we have Rachel Chasen with us from the Washington Post. And Rachel and her colleague, Samantha Schmidt, did an absolutely brilliant piece uh, for the Washington Post called Lafayette Square, Capital Rallies Met Starkly Different Policing Response. And Rachel, uh, thank you for agreeing to, to join us today. The first question I'd like to ask you is, uh, why did you write this piece? You know, I, I, th I think that this is a piece that we started thinking about sort of as the event was unfolding, because a lot of my colleagues on the Metro desk uh, covered the protests over the summer. We were there at Lafayette Square on June 1st when the protesters were cleared. And then we were also the group that was at the Capitol um, when it was breached on January 6th. And so even as we were watching the events of that, that day unfold, we were thinking about how it would or wouldn't have been different um, if it had been the group at BLM that was storming the Capitol. And, you know, the day after we started talking with editors about how best to, to really tell that story, we figured that one way to do it would, would be to go with our amazing, amazing photo editors through the pictures that we had of both of both days and then do it as sort of a visual comparison um, of these two very different days that will in so many ways define, we think, President Trump's legacy. Let's start with the Capitol riot. There were some absolutely jaw-dropping photographs that, and that's always the case with the folks that shoot for the Post. They get some really good photographs. But which of those photographs told the big story to you when you saw them in terms of what took place on the Hill? Because, and that's a whole other story. I mean, what actually happened to many people is still unfolding now because we're just seeing video and, and photographs. So when you look at those photographs that are in your in your piece, what spoke to you the most? You know, it's interesting. It's almost hard to choose because there are so many good ones, but but one that really sticks out to me comes early in the story. And what you see on one side of the screen is the folks at Lafayette Square. And they're sort of gathered in the street intersection. And you can tell it's a really diverse group of people. It's black people, white people, people of all different races. They're mostly young, um, as, as was the case during a lot of the protests over the summer and they're sitting down um, and the people who are standing are sort of holding onto each other's shoulders. And mm -hmm. it's, it's clear that that day, it, it was just an incredibly peaceful day. It was almost felt like a festival at different times. There was singing, um, there were, there's an artist painting. It, it was a very happy atmosphere during the daytime um, and incredibly peaceful during the day. And it, at night things would be different and there was looting um, and there were fires that I don't think should be diminished, but during the day, it was incredibly peaceful, and that's clear in that photo. And then on the right side of the screen, you have um, the people who stormed the Capitol sort of climbing up the walls and helping each other get up as they're going. And, and what was jarring 
was a lot about that picture, but but one thing that sticks out right away is that it was mostly white people and white men who were doing the actual storming of the Capitol. And so I think that that's one sort of contrast that was very clear to us being on the ground for both days was just how different the two groups were. JJ, what, what of all the photographs that we've seen, uh, which is the one that stands out the most for you? I'm just curious. There's one, and I'm not quite sure where this photograph is taken, but there was a photograph, and it was taken by Amanda Voicerd. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel. And it looks like it's through a uh, some type of window or some kind of observation post at the top of the Capitol. Um, mm-hmm. And it shows the Washington Monument. But, you know, the reason why that photograph spoke to me was because we heard that there would be couple days before the rally that President then President Trump was having, that there would be a couple hundred people here, maybe 5,000 people. When you look at this photograph, there is a ridiculous amount of people <laughs> out there that we just didn't expect. And I hadn't seen this perspective of the crowd before seeing this the photograph in this piece. I guess for me, the one photograph that is etched in my mind is this clown carrying Nancy Pelosi's podium uh, in one hand as he's walking through the Capitol. Um, he's I've seen that a lot, probably more than than most, because the guy is from the county where I live in Florida. And uh, so he's a local and um, currently in jail. But that big grin on his face as if this is some kind of a college prank rather than in the capital of the United States. And so that's the one that with that big grin on his face. And that, that that's the one that just, you know, it seemed it was just senseless. OK, I mean, I know he was trying to make a point, but whatever the hell that was carrying that podium around was just ridiculous. Yeah. You know, and there are so many other ridiculous things that took place that day. That, you know, it would probably take two or three hours for me to just tell you all I think about that. But I'd like to ask you this question, Rachel. What was your conclusion about how the security response differed from Black Lives Matter to the Capitol riot? Yeah, I I guess it's almost it's hard to draw. It, It feels in some ways hard to draw conclusions, but I think that the thing that just struck us again and again was just how incredibly different they were. And it sounds simple to say, but it feels Im- impossible to sort of overstate. You know, like we got to the Capitol around 1 p.m. when the first rioters were breaking past the um, the fences on the western side. And there were not more than a dozen Capitol police officers wow. down at that wow. fence. And they were just so easily overpowered. Wow. And my beat partner and I, Rebecca Tan, sort of ran up the lawn with them. And then there were more Capitol police that filed out as they realized what was happening. And very quickly, they called D.C. police and D.C. police and came in. But but the level of preparation was was just, say, it was a fraction of what there was on June 1. Doesn't really do it justice, I don't think. And what they were wearing too was different. You know, they weren't in riot gear at first. They were just in their regular uniforms. And that's compared to Lafayette Square. You had people in, or the police officers and law enforcement officials in, in riot gear. You had shields, you had fencing. It was just so vastly different how, how prepared the two groups were for the two days. You know, I was thinking about this and Washington DC is unique. 
maybe in the whole world, certainly in the United States, in the number of different law enforcement agencies that we have. We have the Park Police. We have the D.C. Police. We have the Secret Service. We have the Capitol Hill Police. We have the National Guard. We have the Executive Protection Service, whatever that is. We have the Treasury agents. We have the FBI. And I'm sure there are a lot more, J.J., that I'm not thinking of. That's off the top of my head. But there are so many different forms of 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 uh, law enforcement in D.C. that it's they're bound to screw up eventually. It's it's I mean, it's just because some of them are not allowed to do things that others are allowed to do. And, you know, unless they're invited in because that's their territory. And as you pointed out, uh, J.G., they were expecting maybe a couple hundred, 500 people to come in and protest. Nobody thought there'd be thousands. And I don't think anybody anticipated they would try to breach the wall of the of the United States Capitol. So I, I don't know so much that it's racially motivated in that they just they underestimated what was going to happen at that rally. And then you got the situation with the Capitol Hill police, which who frankly just messed up badly. Um, you know, had that been the Secret Service, you saw how the uh, inauguration went flawlessly. Yeah. And that was the Secret Service because they were in charge. So I think it depends which agency is in charge. Some are just better than others at it. Well, there that that the the inaugural is a very that's a that's like comparing an apple to an orange tree, um, mm-hmm. because the Secret Service and the national special security event that is an inaugural is way different from what happened at the Capitol. But we can chat about that later, um, Rachel. I just can't, again, tell you how amazing I think this work is that you you did uh, with your colleague. And it, the, the pictures and the writing is just, <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, it's riveting when you look at it. And it's a very, very in-depth. And to me, it's very com- a p- complete accounting of everything that we weren't witness to, including seeing these congressional staffers in the hallway with their hands in the air as they were being ev- evacuated um, told spoke volumes to me. So tell us more about your process of putting this together and um, how, you know, how you work through it. And um, as you look back on it now, has anything changed in your thinking about what was going on? Because and also tell us about your experience on the ground there, too. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in terms of the process for how this story unfolded, but what we did the day after January 6th, so on January 7th, we had a meeting with our photo editors, um, me and my colleagues, Samantha, and then our editors, and we talked about what the story would look like. And then the photo editors were the ones who put together the pairings of the photos. And what Samantha and I did is we went through and sort of looked at our notes from Lafayette Square, where we both were on June 1, and looked at our notes from January 6th and figured out like what sort of the big themes are and, and what the contrasts were that we wanted to draw and what we figured we wanted to make sure that readers could sort of evaluate for themselves with photos and with visuals were the contrasts and the contrasts we saw were mm-hmm. in terms of like who was there, um, the things they brought and the things they chanted, which were just so incredibly different. Um, mm-hmm. You had the protesters on June 1 saying things like Black Lives Matter and there were people with signs that said like black mothers want to breathe um, versus the people on January 1 had Trump flags. They had American flags, but they also had Confederate flags and don't tread on me flags. Um, Some were dressed in revolutionary 
sort of garb and they were chanting 1776. Oh, they were chanting, hang, hang yeah, Mike hang Pence. Mike Pence, yeah, yeah. And they, and then, Which, by I, the way, guess, I'm pretty sure that's a felony in and of itself, is it not? You know, I don't know for I don't sure. Know. But you're, making, you're, making, you're making a threat on the life of the vice president of the United States? I, right. I think I so. Think that's illegal. I think so. Right. And they kept, they were, they were shouting that they were coming for Pelosi and they kept on chanting fight for Trump. Um, now, was there, was there a moment when you felt in danger? Um, there was not for me. No, my, uh, Rebecca Tan and I sort of ran up the lawn with them and we were in the, sort of a, a crush of people that was pushing their way up the steps. And then we stepped out of that crush to make sure that we could report back to our bosses, what was happening and sort of. It, it was like files and feeds that would explain it. And I think that the most danger we ever felt was just that no one was wearing masks and we are still at the worst point of this pandemic. And oh so my God. we were nervous about that. We were all fine. Um, but I, I don't think that we felt personally endangered. I think that a lot of media had it a lot worse off. I think if you came with well, a camera was, or um, any sort of like identification about where you were from, it was really obvious. Then you might've been targeted a lot more and we were honestly really lucky not to have had those experiences well that was a part of what i wanted to ask you next i know that people that are part of the proud boys movement you know they they make it very clear or at least some of them make it very clear that uh, women are not welcome in their group and they spend time uh, negatively uh, engaging with women uh, you know, whether it's trying to put them down in some cases or, or trying to intimidate them. Did you, while all of this was going on, was there any sense of organization to this or was it just like a free for all? It's interesting. It, it's so hard to tell when there are so many people. On that day, the Proud Boys that we saw weren't wearing their usual black and yellow, which we'd seen them in before. And we attended the million or we covered the Million Manga March. And so we, we sort of followed the Proud Boys around there, made sure we were keeping our eye on them. And they weren't wearing black and yellow on January 6th. They were wearing orange instead. And so we could sort of track them that way. And we were following a group of them when the initial sort of breach at the Western Lawn happened. But I don't, I, I think it would be impossible for me to say from where we were sort of who was leading it or what happened. I think in the days since we've, we've learned that they, the protesters were, or the rioters were more organized and they appeared and that they were sort of coordinating via walkie talkies and all this stuff. But in the moment, it was it was impossible to tell. What did you learn from this? <laughs> I know that sounds like a ridiculous question. to ask. Such a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, what did you learn from all of this um, as a reporter and as a person, as an American, as as somebody who's living in 2021 in the United States of Washington, of America and living and wa- working in Washington? It's just such a good question. You know, it, it, people keep on saying it was surreal and, and it's such an overused word at this point, but it's still so true. Um, I grew up in D.C. and so I've lived here for a long time and reported here for the last three and a half years. And I definitely, you know, like never in my wildest sort of dreams or nightmares did I think I would get to witness a siege on the U.S. Capitol. And I, I guess what it showed you, showed me in some ways was... Just that we we never know. We I mean it goes sort of seems silly to say, but we never know what to expect, and we always need to be prepared for sort of that worst case scenario, which I think this so obviously was for law enforcement and for our our city, our country. Um, but it, it was, and yeah, I get I don't I don't know I don't hmm. know. 
what else it taught me in terms of big takeaways. So did you ever figure out what the crowd size was that day for the rally and the whole thing? We think that it was about 8,000 that was oh. watching or was sort of streaming over from President Trump's speech at the Ellipse to the Capitol. But in terms of the actual number that was in the building, it was much smaller than that. It was in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't have an exact figure that we've reported as far as I know. Yeah. Being here, Chris, if you were here, I mean, I know you watched it and I know you've seen pictures and I know being the newsman that you are and you've always been, you're very well aware of what, what took place here. But there was something that happened here that day for people in Washington. I don't know if you can explain this better than me, Rachel, but being here in Washington on that day, there was a, there was something that was to me that was very offensive. It was kind of like the day of 9-11, because I recall I was at the VOA building on that day, and I was across the street from the Capitol. And, and I remember standing on top of the, on the roof watching the Pentagon burn after the plane crashed. But there was something that, to me, I was deeply offended that day, and I felt the same this day. I don't know if you, probably while you were doing your work, Rachel, had time to feel anything like that, but I mean... No, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, th- I think that... The- the thing it's sort of hard hard to reckon with at this point is just that that day and how different it was from what happened on Lafayette did absolutely yes. show sort of so many things about this country. Like it showed the divisions that we still, that we have maybe now more than ever. I, I don't know, but it showed just how deep those divisions are. It showed that people have just completely different senses of what is true and what is not. And the people who were storming the, cap- the Capitol so passionately did believe and so wrongly did believe that the election was stolen from them. And I think it did, you know, I think we're still learning more about the security response and the failures, but I think it did show something really different at the end of the day about how black and white people are treated by law enforcement in America. And there was just something very striking about seeing a group of mostly white people sort of taking selfies in the U.S. Capitol mm. and then walking right out versus a group of young, diverse people getting tear gas. I wasn't there for it, JJ, as you point out, but I, my nephew lives about three blocks from the Capitol, kind of behind the Supreme Court. And I was talking with him and I said, well, do you feel like you're in a war zone? He said, oh, yeah. He said, I'm sorry, I got army at the end of my street. And he said, I can't even go to Chipotle. <laughs> he said they've been they told us that we weren't allowed to come outside, that we had to stay in. Um, fortunately, in in the building in which he lives, there's a giant food so he could take a, a elevator or something to go down to get something to eat. But he wasn't allowed to leave. And I said, well, you're going to be able to go like if you wanted to drive to your parents out in Potomac, would you be allowed to do that? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, my concern would be they might let you out, but they're not going to let you back in. Uh, So I got a little taste from him. I I wouldn't say he was he was somewhat shell shocked. Yes, I think it's probably the first time that, you know, I've been through this because I was not something like this anyway, because I was in college uh, during the Vietnam riots at the University of Wisconsin, where I was, you know, we, we had quite a few law enforcement uh, people on our campus. And it's scary to see. Yeah. It's scary in the United States to see military on the street carrying automatic weapons. I mean, there's yeah. no, but no here's, two ways about that. We're not conditioned for that. Yeah. And here's something back to what Rachel was talking about, the difference. I've been to Baghdad and Kabul numerous times and Kandahar and 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 other places in the Middle East uh, embedded with the military. And I've seen this kind of stuff up close and been unfortunately caught in the thick of this stuff. But, you know, I was offended as well on the 1st of June 
when I saw the entire leadership of the U.S. government, which included the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs walking out, you know, to this Lafayette Square area, uh, these, these poor protesters getting tear gassed, and then this whole thing with the Bible that the former president engaged in, and, you know, thought about that as the situation was unfolding at the Capitol. You know, it didn't have to get to where it did. Part of the reason why it didn't was because somebody at the at the Pentagon supposedly said, well, we're concerned about the optics of the military being in front of the Capitol. Well, it was too late for that. And so there was this there was this deep offense as well, um, in part that day because of that situation, but also because this was actually happening. And Rachel, the context that we've tried to talk with you about today has been one that looks at this from a a racial point of view, but are there other points of view or other facts, other thoughts that we should be considering with you today before we go? You know, I think the only other thing that I can think of is is just to to go back to your point about what happened on June 1. I I do think it was just so striking how much more forceful the response was. I had colleagues, including my colleague Samantha, who are at sort of the fence line, and they were tear gassed by the officials right along with the protesters. I was hit with a rubber bullet as Mm. they're sort of firing really seemingly quite randomly at the crowd. And I think that that difference is something that it it feels really important to remember because those were peaceful protesters. They were not doing anything at that time, and they were cleared so that Trump could make his way to St. John for that photo op. And I think that the difference between that and those storming the Capitol and, and yeah, yeah, it's, it's just, it's definitely striking. Well, I will but say, I, I I'll say this to you, Rachel, you have done an absolutely fabulous job, not, not just with the article with your colleagues and uh, all of the work that was done with that, but uh, spending time talking with us today, painting a picture today that I won't anytime soon forget um, filling in some of the blanks that I didn't have filled in. And I can't thank you enough for doing this. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate thank it. Thank you, Rachel. Okay. So, thank you both. You're welcome. And um, I'm hopeful that we can stay in touch on this because um, there are a couple of other things that I'd like to discuss with you regarding this, if, if it's okay with you. Oh, um, of course. Yeah, no, definitely. And the only, I don't, I don't know if this is helpful, but the only other thing that I could think of was um, when I was covering the inauguration yesterday, I talked. I had this fascinating conversation, really, with this um, 50-year-old from Alabama who decided he wanted to come to the inauguration. Mm-hmm. He's a deep blue Democrat. He's been a Democrat for decades now, uh, but all of his friends and all of his family, for the most part, are Republicans. And he told me that he was so upset by the comparisons that people draw between the, the Black Lives Matter protests and what happened on January 6th because he knows that the Black Lives Matter protests sometimes got out of hand and that there was looting and he's a small business owner who owns a glass shop. He Mm. said that his business actually boomed because so many store owners had to replace their windows. But he just hates the comparison because he thinks thinks that too many conservatives make the comparison because he feels like the protesters then were destroying things. They were destroying material things that insurance can replace. Whereas the rioters on January 6th were trying to destroy the constitution trying to destroy our democracy and that's just so different and it should never should never be compared as if they're parallels and i thought that was a really interesting point it is it is well rachel again great work and thank you for joining us 
Thank you very much. You're listening to Colors. Let me introduce Amanda Gorman, uh, our nation's first ever National Poet Laureate. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. And yet, the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first. We must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. You know, you and I have talked before about some impressive young people. Yeah. We talked about Mia Martinez, yeah. uh, who we had a little clip from her on our show. We talked about um, my daughter's fourth grade student who wrote that beautiful poem that we read last week yeah. or whatever it was. I think it was last week. Yeah, last and show. And then uh, we, had, we saw this, this young woman named Amanda Gorman, mm-hmm. who is now, as of that day, that moment, is now a star. She's 22 years old. And that poem that she read, and you know what it was, JJ? It wasn't just the, the poem, which was lovely. It was the way she read it. She didn't just read it. She acted it out. And it was I mean, it was just, it blew my mind. That was just that might be the highlight of the whole day. And she's only 22. She's 22. <laughs> right. I can barely tie my shoes at 22. <laughs> no, it was great. It was absolutely fantastic. The fact that, that she made all of the comparisons and the contrasts that she made and her delivery was just perfect. You're exactly it right. It was wonderful. Yes. Briefly, back to our interview about security on Capitol Hill and the comparison. I watched what took place at the Capitol from a fairly good distance. 
uh, and later uh, went up there to take a look at what was left behind. And I spent a good amount of time in the run-up to the inaugural down uh, on the Capitol as close as I could get, uh, talking with security personnel and people involved. And it was very clear to me, talking to folks who worked in the building, talked to police and military, a lot of people were shell-shocked. And honestly, talking to some of the people who work in the building, I think some of them probably are going to have PTSD from what took place on the 6th of January. Oh, I would think so. Yeah. And I mean, their, their, their lives were really at risk. And, and the way that um, they, you know, when they realized that they were outnumbered, then the way they handled it was the best they could do, which was try to diffuse the situation, talk, you know, it, better to calm things down than to than to rile them up and try to be all tough guy about it because you don't know it could really spin out of control. Yeah. And this is the reason why Rachel's work was so uh, compelling to me, because it showed essentially the other side, the vulnerability, the weakness of security, if it's not planned and executed correctly. Not saying that what took place on June 1st in, at Lafayette Square was correct, but they were in control of themselves that day. They knew what they were going to do. It was wrong what they did. The way they did it was wrong because I think the protesters were just protesting, you know, but it showed on January 6th, the Capitol situation showed the vulnerability of, of them not being prepared. Well, that's why I did bring up the, the point about all the different law enforcement agencies there are in Washington. Does that sometimes become a problem because they step on each other's feet because of their certain territory they're not supposed to be in, et cetera? Yeah, I do think that that is a problem and has been in the past, but, um, my point about uh, what took place at the Capitol and the inaugural being uh, an apple compared to an orange tree is because the inauguration is something called a national special security event. And what took place at the Capitol was not. And mm-hmm. a national special security event means you've got the military involved, significant military. You've got a heavy police presence. You've got surveillance in the air, on the ground and on the water. You've got thousands of federal, state, and local law enforcement people working in the background um, every time you have one of these national special security events. And, you know, one of those things, a good example of one is the State of the Union speech. Same deal. Mm -hmm. Um, The U.N. General Assembly every year in New York. Same deal. The Capitol situation was not, but it should have been based on a conversation I had with a former or retired deputy secret service deputy director of the secret service. He said it should have been because on January 6th, you had the entire leadership of both political parties, both the minorities leadership and the majority leadership, plus the vice president. You had the entire political leadership of the country, except the president in that one place. Mm-hmm. And that's why this turned out so badly uh, because it was taken advantage of. And, um, these, all of these law enforcement agencies in Washington during a national special security event worked together on the day of January 6th, they weren't, you know, and that's, it showed. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. It's a, considering 
the the number of important leaders who were in one place at one time, yes. it really was up there with an inauguration. Yes. And that I mean, that that's both houses of Congress and the vice president of the United States and some other officials that yes. were all gathered together, the electors, of course. Um, and that, you know, you're right. You're you're right about that. I, I by comparison to what happened on the 20th, what happened this week with the inauguration where things were well planned. Uh, I remember at one point saying to you, should they hold this inside? And you said, nope, they should hold it on the West Terrace of the Capitol and they should have a parade and they should we have to show that the rest of the world that we're still here. We're still standing. And that's what happened. And it went off beautifully. I will bring in one other factor, and that uh, is um, so I'll declare publicly that on Inauguration Day uh, in the afternoon, um, I got my first vaccination for COVID-19. It's the Pfizer vaccination. Uh, and it feel? went off with it went off without a hitch. How do you feel? Uh, and how do I feel? I feel fine. Uh, my my arm was a little bit sore this morning when I woke up, but I went from my usual swim. And at the end of the swim, it was fine. Um, I will. Uh, uh, it has been brought up that about there being a racial um, aspect to where the vaccine is being delivered. I'll just say this. In in St. Petersburg, Florida, where I where I live, um, that would be impossible to do because it really is just luck of the draw, almost random. Uh, the governor declared that if you're 65 or older, you're eligible. They only had so many doses. I got an alert on my phone on the 15th that um, it was time to sign up. M my wife was already on the computer. And we got through and I got scheduled and I got vaccinated. But at no point and it was anything about, well, we're just making sure that, you know, white people will get vaccinated or black people. There was no aspect. It's just random. And frankly, it's a bit of luck. I mean, luck that I heard the the uh, uh, alert go off and then that my wife acted so quickly to get us online and, and to get signed up. So um I'm just happy to report that piece of good news. At least here, there doesn't seem to be any racial disparity about where the vaccine is. No, and that's pretty much the case. You uh, in, know, in in the majority of the places that I have heard from as well, the concern that many folks of color have had, and we've discussed this on this show before, is trusting the product. Yeah. Trusting this vaccine. And, you know, there have been numerous people of color and uh, people who aren't of color who have proven that uh, this is something that we need to do and to move that whole idea of of the, the, this being a sinister plot aside, because that's not the case here. Um, and sooner or later, we'll get there. I'm just hopeful that we do that before more people needlessly suffer and die. Well, I, I mentioned that I did it um, after the inauguration. That was just happened to be when I was scheduled, but I'd have gone any time that there was an availability, but it was after um, Biden was president. And, um, and, and therefore, I guess I'm one of those. He talks about 100 million shots in the first 100 days. I guess I'm one of those and lucky to have been so. Yeah. But, you know, um, we're, we're off to something. We're into something new now. We're into something different now. And, uh, you know, I intended to bring this up while we were talking with Rachel, but we ran out of time. 
But one of the things we as journalists labored under for the last few years was the threat that we were the enemy of the people. Quite often you would hear the president at the time say, the press is the enemy of the people. And a lot of people took that seriously. And a lot of us labored under this concern about people coming after us, coming after our families and, and, and you know, coming after our workplaces. And, and you know, the, the inauguration was, a, was, a, was a, a step in a new direction for a lot of, for a lot, for a lot of different reasons. And I'm really happy that that it happened, that we're making this step in the, in this direction because it's a big relief for me not to have to look over my shoulder so much, at least right now. I mean, who knows what could happen in the near future? But the inauguration was a step in the right in the new in a new direction for for a lot of different reasons, Chris. And I think this is the one of the problems of having somebody who's not been in politics before suddenly get into politics is not understanding this. And that is that there has not been a president in my lifetime who didn't complain about the press. They didn't say that the press was the enemy of the people, but they complained. Every president, President Obama thought he was being unfairly attacked at Mm -hmm. times. President Bush did before that. President Clinton did before that. It goes on and on. But the, you know, presidents have to grow a thick skin. They got to learn how to deal with it. Uh, and it's, that's just the way it's always going to be. John McCain used to complain about his press coverage, but he said, for heaven's sake, keep it up. And that's what politicians have to understand or anybody seeking political office, especially at the higher level. The media is doing its job when we ask tough questions and we press on facts. And if you as a public official are trusted with power and you are telling us things that are demonstrably not true. It is not only uh, our privilege, it is our duty, our obligation to point out that what you're saying isn't true. And that's, that's, that's why the press exists. Thank God for it. And I've, you know, I've given speeches on this. You probably have too, where I, you know, like to say, people say, well, is the press biased? Well, depends on who you are, but, but most people who I know, who go out to cover stories, just to cover stories, not talking about opinion TV or opinion radio, go out to cover stories, are trying to be as objective as they can. Every story that you cover is colored through the prism you, with which you see it, but that, you know, that's just, we can't do anything about that. But it is the job of, of you now and me occasionally to point things out and say, this isn't right, or this doesn't make sense, this doesn't add up, or this isn't true. Yeah. And before we go, I want to say that is precisely why we exist, because there are a lot of disparities when it comes to race in this country. And a lot of people have taken to blaming one side of the media or another side of the media for the problem, the racial problem that we have in this country. And the thing that we want to do here is talk about it all. And to do it in a way that's respectful and telling people that the press is the enemy of the people is, is not something that that works because we're not. And what we're doing here, hopefully, you know, is to give people a better understanding of, of perspectives. And that's why we, we talked to Rachel specifically about the 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 uh, security situation at the Capitol on January 6th and the Black Lives Matter uh, security because a lot 
of people around the country are talking about how very differently those events were responded to. I'm Chris Corr, and I'm white. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors. And we'd like to remind you, if you have anything you want to tell us about our program, a compliment or some criticism or a suggestion for the show, send us an email, and you can reach us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. That's thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. The pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time. And it's Henry Aaron. The life and times of the legendary Hank Aaron. For 23 years, I took the talent that God gave me and developed it to the best of my ability. He passed away on January 22nd, 2021. We take a look back at what he did for baseball and what he did for race and the world. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. And as we go, we want to say thank you to Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Julia Ziegler, Joe Loxley, Elena Fortney, Ellie Rowe, Greg Strassel, Lisa Weiner, Sean Anderson, Rose Varner Gaskins. Dimitri Sotis, Brennan Hazelton, and for our music, Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic and Nena Kwabena. And most of all today, we want to thank you for listening and remind you, just keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors. A dialogue on race in America.